What is going on, ladies and gents? Robert Sykes, KetoSavage.com, and today I have special guest Tanya Pennington on. We dove deep into a lot of different things. I've got a lot of respect for her uh, based off her approach to nutrition, uh, training. We, we just dove deep. It was good. Um, she's competed in the past extensively with uh, CrossFit, and she's now doing Spartan races, but she also used to compete in figure. So we dove into what her nutritional protocol was then, and then now that she's keto, how she's implemented and changed that for her clients. And honestly, it was kind of strange because her protocol and my protocol is pretty much the same. I'm not going to say the same, but it's very similar. So it was cool to see and hear somebody else's approach uh, and, and see how it mirrored a lot of the same things that I do. And it works. So huge shout out to her there for finding something that works well and then preaching that as a healthier alternative to what a lot of people are doing out there. Uh, and on top of that, we talked about, like I said, the Spartan races. I dove into that with her because I've been intrigued by that sport and am considering doing that at some point in the future. Uh, and we also dove into a nutritional therapy. She, she's a nutritional therapist. We talked about how she incorporates different foods, um, how she helped uh, improve the absorption of the fat in her diet. Uh, we, we talked about a lot of things. So sit back, relax. Hope you enjoy the podcast with Tanya Pennington. And we're live. Tanya Pennington, how are you? Doing great. How are you doing? I'm doing wonderfully well. I'm excited to talk with you because I was talking to Crystal, and she had mentioned that you'd helped her some with her prep. And I, I just really respect and look to other female competitors that are doing hard things outside of just competitions in, in general. But, I mean, you've done a whole bunch of Spartan races. Like, you're doing impressive things following a ketogenic protocol as a female. And I feel like those stories need to be voiced so that more people know that it's possible. Yeah, yeah. So dive into your your background as a nutritional therapist. I just want to kind of give me give me some background and give the, our listeners a little little insight into what got you into the space. Okay. Well, I've actually been in this industry for 20 years now and my passion for health and fitness really began it began in high school and I think a lot of it was, you know, kind of looking around at my family, really on both sides, my mom's side, my dad's side and um you know, not everybody is the healthiest. And I thought, you know, I really don't want to end up in that place. And so I actually, one week after graduating high school, became a personal trainer and was just thought I had, you know, hit the jackpot. It was my dream job. It was everything I ever wanted to do. Um, and I loved it. I continued to do that for years, um, went on to get my degree in kinesiology with a concentration in exercise science. Um, actually, competed in my very first figure competition in 2001. So I'm, I'm definitely dating myself now. Um, and at that point, my whole goal in life was to own a gym. Mm -hmm. I thought that's, there was no question in my mind. Um, that's what I was going to do because of my passion for what it was that I did. And so one thing that my mom had always told me is whatever it is that you think you want to do in life, make, you know, really make sure that you're working in that area for a period of time so that you, you know, you actually know what it's all about. And so I went into gym management. Um, I was a general manager of several gyms. Um, I enjoyed it. However, I just couldn't help but notice how many people were coming in and out of there. And I mean, working their butts off. I mean, just the intensity was through the roof and they were sweating and, but a year would go by and just no change no change to their body composition. And, and, you know, that's what they were working for. They wanted that change. And that's when I really started switching over to, okay, I need to focus more on this nutrition side of things because nobody's going to outwork a poor diet unless, you know, they're a 17 year old male. Right. Right. And so, yeah. So I really started looking into the nutrition side of things um, and actually switched my career over to um, getting involved with the nutrition and supplement stores. And so I did that for years. I actually managed supplement stores um, and I continued to compete in figure competitions as well. Um, and then I finally opened my own supplement store, which I currently still have today. So I have a brick and mortar total nutrition. And with that, I knew I wanted to be able to help people further beyond what I was currently doing, which was, you know, helping people with customized meal plans. Um, I was coaching 
um, figure and bikini and physique athletes at that point, but I wanted to be able to um, help at a deeper level. And that's why I chose to continue my education to become a functional nutritional therapy practitioner, um, a certified diabetes specialist and a restorative wellness pr practitioner, which allows me to really go into the digestive healing. So I'm able to specialize in fat loss, digestive healing, optimizing performance, and I can do it all through nutrition and lab testing. And the lab testing is really an important aspect to all of it so that we can really become wholly healthy and find the root cause of things because, you know, we're looking at everything with a functional perspective. And so, and that's kind of where it leaves me today is I've got my brick and mortar store. I've got my nutritional therapy practice, Nourish to Thrive, which I run out of my office inside of my uh, total nutrition location, as well as I work remotely with clients and I continue to coach um, competitors. I've got both bikini and figure who are competing currently. Um, I compete in Spartan races and half marathons. And um, yeah, so that's where I'm at now. Lots of different avenues I want to take this. Um, with regard to the nutrition and kind of emphasizing that when you when you started getting into it, it it's funny because I feel like a lot of people have that background. They, they start to think that you know, training is, is kind of like the main determining factor to how your composition looks, um, and that gets most of the attention. That's, that's what I did when I was, you know, teenager. I just trained in the gym, and I, nutrition was kind of an afterthought. Um, and I feel like people put these percentages on it, like, oh, it's, you know, 75% training, 25% diet. Uh, but I think the more I learn, I think it's more more the flip-flop of that, more, more so nutrition than anything else. Absolutely. I mean, gosh, and 75% might even be low for the nutrition side. Totally, totally. So when you got into, uh, you know, the keto diet, you've been doing that for a while now. What what did you find in doing your nutritional therapy studies, working with the clients? Like what led you down that path to become more, uh, you know, more emphasizing of the, the fat adaptation? You know, it really all kind of began because it, it seemed that whatever a person was dealing with, whether we were talking, you know, digestive issues or if we're talking diabetes, if we're talking inflammation, adrenals, thyroid, it all came back to the foundation of stabilizing your blood sugar levels. And so when you look at it from that aspect, if that's where we need to start, no matter which way we're going or no matter what it is that we're trying to heal, what's the best way to balance our blood sugar levels? And that would be to control our carbohydrates. Because anytime we're playing with carbohydrates, it's kind of like we're always chasing them. And so it's like they kind of can't be trusted, you know. And so if we can pull the carbohydrates out while increasing our good quality fat intake, um, then we just get this beautiful balance of blood sugar levels that then allows us to move on beyond that to do the work that we need to do. Totally agree. There's there's a, a pretty bad, I mean, it's, it's interesting for me that you are, uh, you know, coach to these bikini and figure athletes because I feel like the bodybuilding industry as a whole is probably going to be one of the last demographics to really embrace keto as a as a you know option for contest prep nutrition, I feel like they oftentimes body bodybuilders are pretty ignorant. They just think that they're doing keto simply when they take out the carbs, whereas in reality they're still way too high on the protein, not in taking enough fat. So, do you feel like you've been getting a bunch of resistance from that space in being a coach for figure athletes to do a ketogenic prep? Well, so number one, I definitely agree with you about that space being the last to embrace a ketogenic approach. Um, and yes, I've had so many clients come to me and say, oh, yeah, I don't want to do um, keto for my prep with you because I've tried that before and it didn't work for me. And so I always ask and I say, well, can I see what plan you were on before so that we can just confirm that what you were doing was actually a ketogenic protocol, never trying to step on another coach's toes. But if I'm able to kind of share with them that, you know, here's how it's actually going to look different for you, um, then they generally jump on board. And because a lot of people, the people who come to me for coaching, it's always through a referral. It is certainly not my, it's not my thing that I'm doing to make money. That's kind of like my, it's just my passion. I enjoy staying involved in that industry. So I always like to have just, you know, a small team that I'm coaching 
And so it's usually somebody who's been referred by somebody. So there's already that trust there. Mm -hmm. So I don't generally tend to have too much of an issue um, getting them to do, you know, to go the keto route. And I explained to them that in my experience, and, and I have a lot of years of experience with this, one of the main reasons why I like to use a ketogenic approach, aside from, gosh, it takes a lot of the guesswork out of your prep, it takes a lot of the guesswork out of peak week. But also, I think most important is what happens, you know, post show or between shows, if they're doing multiple shows, because the rebound effect when somebody has followed followed a ketogenic protocol is just so much less at least in my experience than when i would you know when i used to coach without a ketogenic protocol or when i used to compete without a ketogenic protocol um, there is just something about that rebound effect that it's easy for a female a female to put on 20 pounds within a matter of weeks post-show I totally, totally agree, and I feel like not enough people are talking about this, so I'm definitely going to take this opportunity to just dive deep because I feel like it needs to be highlighted. I mean, I personally gained 20 pounds, 24 post, 24 hours post-show after my first competition, which was just not healthy. That was obviously before keto. But with re- you mentioned peak week um, and kind of simplifying your peak week by leveraging a ketogenic uh, diet for your contest prep. So what, is, what does that mean exactly in your words? Like I, I know how I work with my clients during peak week on keto, but I'd love to hear your take on that and kind of how it's easier and more sustainable than traditional bodybuilding bro diets. Sure. Yeah. So the, the bro way, I guess, is just so much more complicated because we, we have this theory that it's like, okay, pull out the carbs. That way you empty your glycogen stores and flatten your muscles and make sure you're drinking a bunch of water at that point, And then you're going to drop your water and now we're going to eat a bunch of carbs and all those carbs are going to go directly into your muscles and fill them up as if we get to choose, you know, exactly where these carbs are going to go. And, you know, you're playing this game with this, you know, hoping that you don't spill over, but also hoping that you get full enough, hoping you don't look too flat. Shoot. Do we need to cut your water more? Do we need to increase your carbs more? Which is it? And so you're just, you're just chasing, you're chasing carbs, you're chasing that whole game. And when you take that aspect out of it, um, oh my gosh, it be, just becomes, it becomes so much easier. First and foremost, a person needs to be ready for their show a week before the show. Totally and if agree. You feel that you, <laughs> and if you feel that you need to, you know, cut and empty and fill up and, you know, do all these things, I'm going, I don't think that person is holding water necessarily. I think they're holding fat. And so if we can just be prepared the week before, there's really not a whole heck of a lot that you have to do coming up to show day. So I might pull out some veggies and things that I might think could potentially um, cause some bloat, um, you know, to make sure that they're they're They don't have any bloat coming into the show. Um, I'll increase their proteins a little bit that week. As we get toward the end of the week, I will increase the fats. And as a matter of fact, what I have my athletes do now Friday night before the show is eat this wonderful thing called an Omega keto pizza. And where'd you, where'd so you... I got you, I got that from you. <laughs> oh, I, I, I thought it sounded a little familiar cause I made that one with the, the fish. So that's what you're using the, that fish pizza that I made. Yes. Yes. Oh wow. That's and awesome. I, so I, yeah, I trialed that out on one of my athletes who was very willing to, to give it a go. And, um, gosh, not only did she love the taste of it, but it really, um, you know, with that sodium content that you have in there and the ratio of your proteins to your fats, um, does wonderful things. And it's, it's interesting because I will have my athletes send me, um, their weight and pictures Friday morning. We go through a a trial on Friday. So I might do this a couple weeks out from the show, a few weeks out from the show. Um, I have them go through their Friday. I have them eat that pizza in the evening. And then Saturday morning, I have them send me their weight and pictures again, and we see what's happened. And it's, gosh, nine times out of 10, each athlete drops about two to three pounds um, just by just by doing that, which is really interesting. So there's just a lot more control when you take the carbs out of the equation. All right. I definitely want to dive into this because I want to just echo and emphasize what you've just said, because I totally agree. And it sounds like our protocols are pretty similar. Um, so first thing you said that I totally want to highlight is that people need to be ready like a week out 
before peak week. I mean, people, I'm amazed at how many people come up to me and they just have this illusion of themselves, assuming that they're going to do some crazy water manipulation and then look 30 pounds leaner in a matter of 24 to 48 hours. And it's just, it's just total ignorance. I mean, if you're not ready, I mean, you should be looking amazing several weeks out from the show, totally independent of any water or caloric manipulations, period. Like that, that should be the standard. And if you're expecting to see some miraculous change during peak week, then, then you haven't given yourself enough time or done the prep properly. So I feel like we can both agree on that for sure. Uh, you know what? And I, I, yes, we are in such agreement, but what, what I also, who I want to place the blame on there is I want to place the blame on the coaches because it's the coaches that put this in the minds of their athletes that, oh, don't worry, peak week, everything's going to change. And I, I know personally coaches who load their athletes up on three to five gallons of water a day at the beginning of the week, having them ingest soy sauce, drink pickle juice, all of these things to retain all of that water, and then they drop the water down to zero ounces, cutting all of that sodium. I mean, all of these things. So it's really the coaches, I think, that have put this in the athlete's mind. And so, it, you know, and it just kind of goes throughout the industry that way. Yeah, I totally agree. I mean, I am not the world's greatest coach by any means. There's a lot of things that I need to learn still. I learn something new every day. But I am I'm, I'm pretty – I'm just in disbelief at some of the advice that I've seen coaches put out there for their, their contest prep clients. I mean – it, it's honestly just dangerous. I mean, it's it's not safe to have such a flux in your body's hydration and electrolyte levels, especially when you're that depleted and, you know, that physically active and extreme as, a, as a, you are at the end of a contest prep. I mean, that's like the worst environment for having these crazy manipulations with your, uh, your, your nutrition, your, your water intake, your electrolytes. Like the closer you can get to just what you sustain on the normal day-to-day basis during peak week, the better. I mean, I personally, I don't know what you're doing, but I personally don't even manipulate water uh, during peak week. Like, like they stay hydrated throughout the entirety of it, which I think is, is better. I mean, your, your body, you shouldn't have to dehydrate to the point of, you know, muscle exhaustion. Right, exactly. Because then you just, you feel horrible. And I've actually had an experience, gosh, this was probably 2000 and might have been 2006 or so where I actually at registration passed out. Yeah. And that, what's sad and is that's, that's it, pretty common. Like a lot of people have that issue. Yeah. And I had at that point a coach who was having me drink, you know, nothing but distilled water. And, you know, so it's like you said, you change all of these things the week of, and we, we think that we like to expect what the outcome's going to be, but we can't because we've just changed everything. <laughs> Throughout the the bulk of the prep, do you normally have? Uh, I, I, don't know, I know everybody's different. It's gonna be different macros, different ratios for everybody. But in working with the clients that you have, have you noticed uh, that they tend to perform better at a higher fat ratio or a higher protein intake? You know, it's definitely different for each athlete. So I kind of have a place where I start the athletes at initially. And then I start to kind of manipulate the proteins and the fats. And I and as we go along, I like to bring the fats down, increase the proteins. And I will say that that works really well for a lot of my athletes to where we get to a point where proteins and fats are actually equal in terms of grams. And however, there will be some athletes where I kind of start going that same, you know, decreasing and increasing on the proteins and fats that way and then the fat loss stops so then i'll back it up again and i start bringing the proton protein down again and the fats back up again and there we are we're back on track so it's really a matter of there's you know there never is just one way it really has a lot to do with with the athletes themselves you know we're just we're all bio individuals and so um you know we all respond a little bit different totally agree uh, what about like total caloric intake? Have you noticed, um, you know, with a keto approach versus a carb-based protocol, what their total caloric intake is at the onset versus what it tapers down to, uh, you know, there during peak week? Is there much of a variation there between the carbs and the ketone uh, protocols, keto protocols? 
You know, I definitely noticed that with the keto protocols, the total caloric intake generally tends to be lower, both at the start and as we go along. And then by the end, it just generally is a little bit lower. And I think that has a lot to do with just kind of the, um, you know, the satiety that comes along with it and, you know, not increasing, not having those carbohydrates to make you hungry. And, you know, because I used to do before I was doing the ketogenic approach, I would do a lot of carb cycling with my athletes. And this, this would be, you know, say a decade ago. And this actually has a lot to do also with, hmm, maybe a ketogenic protocol would be better. Because what I would notice is I would do this carb cycling where, you know, on Monday they would get X amount of carbs and Tuesday a little bit less and Wednesday a little bit less and Thursday a little bit less. There would be two days where I would take out the carbs, drive up the fats, and the person would just feel all of a sudden good that day. They had energy, they didn't have dips and drives, all of those things. And they would always say, gosh, I would be so excited for my carb day because I thought I was going to be so satisfied to have all those carbs. But all I wanted was more carbs on those days. All I was was more hungry on those days. And so, you know, you really start to listen to those things and you can't ignore it and you go, okay. And that's when I really started looking into, you know, that insulin effect and, and that, that hunger, you're driving up that hunger. And so, yeah, with the ketogenic protocol, I find that generally speaking, the caloric intake tends to be a little bit lower. And perhaps that also is because of the, you know, muscle sparing capabilities of the ketones. Do you find that um, th there's any negative? Well, let me rephrase this question. I feel like a lot of people in the space, especially competitors, they they're just chronically eating at a deficit. And we'll we'll definitely get into the reverse that part because I know we have a lot to do. A lot of, a lot about the ketogenic diet can be applicable from the reverse diet standpoint. But as calories drop for the contest prep. Do you notice that um, at a lower caloric intake, the athletes that are following a ketogenic protocol seem to be outperforming those that have a slightly higher caloric intake, but with a carb-based protocol? I feel like the nutrient absorption and level of adaptation when following a ketogenic protocol at times of uh, you know caloric deficit, like when you're during a, in a prep, you're going to perform better with a ketone-based diet. 100%. 100%. So if I compare athletes that I was coaching before, not on a ketogenic protocol to the athletes that I coach now, only on a ketogenic protocol, it's like, they're just fine. They're okay. Energy's good. Every time I ask them, peak week, it just doesn't matter. They're just good. And I'll see, you know, because I have my brick and mortar store, I have customers who come in who have other coaches and you know they're nearing their show and they just walk in like zombies and i see them and i gosh you know i go gosh that really just it brings back memories it brings back memories to my old preps and it brings back memories of you know athletes that i used to coach and here they are and i just you know you just want to tell them it doesn't have to be that way it really doesn't and i you know i'm very careful like i said i don't want to step on other coaches toes and you know especially coaches that live in my area and that sort of thing I, I you know have respect for all of them um, but yes I 100% am in agreement with you on that I, I know again everybody's gonna be different but have you noticed like a uh, just on average like if you were to take all your your female competitors and and average what their lowest caloric intake is you know during that peak week period uh, what what is that number tend to be around like what window is usually what you're seeing if i had to say an average during peak week would probably be somewhere around 1200 1200 and these are for competitors that i'm assuming are weighing between like 110 to 130 somewhere in that ballpark yes i would say even gosh 108 up to maybe yeah maybe 130 high yeah about 130 yep and that's what we've gotten down to and then when they're reverse dieting, where do they tend to like? Where, where do they start to to normalize, uh, like hormonally, metabolically? What caloric intake when they're building back up, do they tend to to normalize that. So generally, around depending on the athlete, generally, you know how much muscle they have and that sort of thing. Um, I see them do pretty well up around the eighteen hundred to about twenty two hundred. Yeah. Once we have reversed all the way back up. 
Yeah, I think that is that is huge. A lot of people, I, I want to make sure that anybody listening to this podcast doesn't hear that 1,200 number and think that's what's sustained indefinitely because a lot of people come to me and they're like, oh, I've been eating 1,200 calories for the last eight months and nothing's changing. And that, that's, that happens way too often. <laughs> like way too many people are eating way too little. Um, so having that because that that period of time is only like a week or two uh, and are are you doing high calorie days during that peak week period just toward the end I'll do a high calorie just not toward the beginning Friday the day before the show usually yep. yeah that's, yeah that's what I do as well so while calories are super low at the lowest they still get one high calorie day to kind of offset that really low calorie intake uh, which I think is also hugely important like people it's interesting. Like when you do competition prep, when you work with athletes going through a competition prep, you have a, a much better pulse on how the body's responding to the different caloric manipulations you're making and how it's impacting their hormones and metabolism and all that comes with that. And that's a concept that I feel like a lot of people just simply would never really have the opportunity to get insight on because you just get such a better grasp of it when you're going through a competition prep. And most people, frankly, are not going through competition preps. But the the principles that apply to competitors are also directly applicable to people that are just trying to be healthier and change their body composition. Absolutely. And, you know, to, to kind of add more to the, the calorie talk, like you said, there are a lot of people who, you know, that 1200 number is kind of in their mind a lot. And gosh, I'm not seeing any results. And so when I have an athlete come to me who does want to compete, one of the biggest pieces of the conversation that we have to have, one of the biggest discussions is, where are you right now? How are you eating right now? What are your calories look like right now? And so I have them track for me for a bit so that I can see where we're starting. Because potentially if this, per and gosh, there are, there's a lot of women who, I mean, they're even down at, you know, a thousand calories. Mm -hmm. And so I'll let them know, you know, we're going to need a period of time to work together before we start your prep. We need to get you on a baseline here so I can get them set up and just as, you know, a customized meal plan client to kind of build them up so that I can, you know, get them some sort of metabolism so that we have somewhere to go because I'm not going to be able to put somebody through prep who's starting at a thousand calories, 1200 calories, or even 1400 calories. I'm not going to be able to help you because how, how much more can we really cut down? Yeah. Yeah. So I have we that, really have to sort of establish that foundation. I have that same conversation a lot. And, and a lot of people don't want to hear that. Like they, they just want to do a prep. They just assume that it's going to be, you know, gravy and they can just keep cutting calories. But there's, there's only so much caloric runway, so to speak. And if you've already run out of runway, there's, there's nowhere else to go except starvation. Nobody wants that. Um, exactly. But yeah, this, this is good. This, this is the kind of stuff that I want to put out there in the spotlight because more people need to know the implications that come with, you know, caloric manipulations and, and just chronic dieting in, in general. Um, so let's, let's dive into the reverse. So after the competition, you know, like like we kind of touched on earlier, a lot of competitors have that negative rebound, put on a bunch of weight over, uh, you know, not not very long period of time at all. What have you noticed happening when following a ketogenic protocol as a reverse diet compared to carb based protocols? Gosh, it is just it, it's actually pretty mind blowing to me to watch my athletes post show not blow up because that was just always a given before. It's like, that was just going to happen. And now with the ketogenic protocol, it's actually interesting because, you know, you would almost think, especially if it's an athlete who hadn't always been keto before, but now they are because of competition prep, you might think that they are just, you know, chomping at the bit for prep to be over so they can go back to their old lifestyle. But because they realize how good they feel both just in general in life, but also comparative to other athletes that they've now met who have been zombies, they really don't want to go back to how they were eating before. So the, a lot of them are very willing to stay keto. And then we just start to titrate back up on those proteins and those carbs, or I'm sorry, and those fats until we can get them back up to that place where great. Now we've got your metabolism back up here because being at that low metabolism for too long, that's when we start to see, you know, thyroid implications, adrenal implications, those sort of things. So it's really important to get those calories back up to a healthy place, but doing that properly. 
And I mean, I have to say, and I work very close, closely with my athletes. I have a good bond with each of them um, because it's really important. And I don't, you know, I, there's no such thing as it's show day and then see you later. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we still need to continue this post show. And so, um, but yeah, I just have yet to have a keto athlete have a major rebound effect post show. Do you feel, well, actually in the entirety. So like the, the prep itself, the peak week, the reverse diet and all of that, do you notice, uh, or do you ever implement like, like carb ups or, uh, targeted carbs, cyclical carbs at all for any of your athletes? Have you noticed any reason to? So I have a little bit with some, not all, again, because not all of them need it. But if I have some athletes who are um, having major cravings during certain times of the month or, you know, and it just really isn't letting up and we've increased the fats and we've done all those things that we know to usually do, I will sometimes allow them, but it's, it, it's going to be yams, you know, it's going to be sweet potatoes, something like that, um, to, to just get those carbs in there and see if that helps them. I might do it for, um, one night or two nights, allow them to have that. And a lot of times it seems to really help with that, that leptin sensitivity again, to where they're fine to move forward. So I have one girl right now who she's actually about to compete next weekend not this weekend but the next and she's one where i've had to incorporate a couple of times a month you know some carb ups here and there um, but my other two girls one another one is competing with her another one just competed a couple weeks ago um, i i haven't had to do that with them and so you know it's just really being in tune with each athlete to to see what it is that they need do you notice that they have those carb cravings when calories at more of a sustainable higher level or is that just when calories are pretty low you know it's hard to say because they so rarely talk about cravings and so like with this particular athlete it's kind of just been throughout the prep when we were higher in calorie and when we were lower and or when we are lower in calories now um it's kind of that same feeling that she's had although but those carb ups have really taken care of it for her so you know, it's, it's just really been a non-issue, but I don't, I actually don't see cravings increase in my athletes as we're dropping their calories lower. I had a Allie Miller on the podcast a while back and we were diving into, uh, you know, leveraging carbs for, you know, women during their cycle to help normalize their cycle. And she, she went into detail about how that works from a biological standpoint, like the, with the leptin and the ghrelin and the hormones, um, but she basically alluded to the same thing could be accomplished just from intaking a higher, you know, amount of food. And this was not talking about competitors specifically, so some rules may not quite apply. But just people in general, I feel like a lot of females are quick to look for carbs as a way to satisfy uh, or as a way to normalize their cycle, where in reality they should probably be emphasizing just getting in enough food. And that could be a really great point too, because, you know, by incorporating the extra carbs, you know, we're, we're incorporating more calories. And so, you know, maybe that, that could also be accomplished by a higher calorie, you know, a higher calorie keto day. So that's certainly something worth trying as well. And I'm like you where, my gosh, I don't know everything as a coach by any means. And I am always open, you know, in any aspect to, to learn more to, I mean, I'm just, always wanting to learn more. So I think that, yeah, that could be definitely something we're trying. Well, it's, it is cool for me to hear somebody else following a similar protocol to what I implement with my own clients as well. I mean, there's there's a very unique approach to going through a competition prep following a legitimate ketogenic diet, not like a you know misinformed keto diet, but like an actual ketogenic diet. And, you know, both of us having competed following traditional methods versus what we know and implement now it's like the more the more competitors we see implement this that i mean i don't know it's just better like people are healthier it's more sustainable there's less damage done metabolically hormonally for both male and female athletes so it's cool for me to hear you describe your protocol and me pretty much recognize it very similar to my own and and know that we're, we're sharing the same message that's that's good yeah i love that so let's let's switch gears a little bit. I want to dive into uh, 
Well, I want to go two different directions. I want to talk about the Spartan races first because I've had a few people on the podcast and they've just dove deep into obstacle course racing and my interest has been piqued, but I have not yet pulled the trigger and picked a race. So you have done, you're, you're like the Spartan race master now, right? <laughs> um, well, maybe one day. I uh, I do have, because I have such a wonderful husband, he has built two rigs for me that we have here at our house. Um, so I do have basically every Spartan obstacle at home to practice on. So, um, and we, we do those regularly. And so, yeah, actually tomorrow I'll be doing the uh, El Tajon Beast, which is a 13 to 15 mile Spartan race. And that will have, I think somewhere around 30 obstacles. I've got, uh, another couple races in November, another race at the beginning of December. And then I have my big, this for me is kind of like a, just sort of a one-time bucket list thing that I think I'm going to do. Cause I don't, I don't know that it's very smart, but mid December I'm taking on the ultra beast, which is going to be a 30 mile Spartan with 60 obstacles. That is going to be a beast for sure. Yeah. 60 obstacles, 30 miles. And, and where is that one located? That one will be uh, the Central Coast in California. Is it pretty cold there in California? I don't know. I'm a year. No. And the coast, actually at the coast right now, so I was kind of keep, keeping my eye out on the weather over there to see what it's doing. And it's actually still like high 80s and even 90s some days. Oh, wow. So I'm really hoping that it's, you know, I'm thinking it should probably be around the 70s. The coast generally is pretty stable year round on their weather. So I'm, I'm curious because the the mindset of a competitive figure athlete like you were versus that of a competitive Spartan athlete like you are now, has there been a shift? Like have you changed at all in your approach to, you know, how you view competition, how you, uh, you know, what your goals are in doing that event, or has that pretty much stayed the same throughout? Because I've I've looked at how I view competing on stage, and I like competitions because it's like it's individual sports, not a team sport. I'm not a fan of team sports for me personally. It's just not my thing. I like being able to push myself. Do you get the same vibe from a Spartan? Or is it is it something different entirely? So I will say that there are both similarities and differences between, you know, figure competitions. I also competed um, quite heavily in CrossFit competitions and now competing in Spartans. The similarity there is that they are all individual sports. And so I, like you, prefer the individual aspect to all of these things. So that, for one... Um, is a similarity that they all have, but they all are a little bit different. So for me, the reason, so I actually stopped competing in figure competitions in 2012. And I remember at that point I was single and uh, living on my own with my tubal mastiffs and I would date, but it never really worked out because I think that one thing that we can both agree on is I'm not going to blame the reason my dating didn't turn into more I'm not going to blame it on figure competitions, but it was one aspect because it's a very selfish sport. And so, you know, because it's all about, and especially with how I was doing, you know, I wasn't using a ketogenic approach at that time. And so it was just, you know, eating six, seven, sometimes eight times a day. My coach had me eating the cardio that you had to do in the morning, the cardio that you had to do at night. Um, I was, you know, the job I was working at that time was 10 hours a day. And, you know, then you set up photo shoots, and, you know, all these things. And I remember still loving competing, but making that decision that this is going to be my last show. I feel like I need to hang up the figure suit and just move on to something different that still allows me to compete because that's just innately who I am, which is when I then switched over to CrossFit but isn't going to require such a regimented routine and such a weighing of all of my food. And I can't go there because they don't have the right things for me to eat. And I really don't want to go to the movies because that popcorn is going to smell too good or, you know, all of those things. And so that was really the main reason I stopped competing in figure as well as, you know, there's this aspect 
in the bodybuilding industry, one of the biggest, one of the biggest things about it is it's a, you know, it's a political sport and it's all subjective. Yeah. So I really wanted to enter into something that was more measured. It's like you won or you lost, you did more reps or you did less reps, you lifted more weight or you lifted less weight. And so I was kind of ready to just enter into something that was just more measurable than a judge who maybe preferred a blonde or over a brunette or a brunette over a blonde, because at the end of the day, that, that's what it could be. Um, which that's actually one of the other conversations I have with a lot of my athletes is don't put a lot of weight on your placing here, you know, because it's all subjective. And so that's when I switched over to CrossFit and I would say kind of the CrossFit and Spartan thing were there's, they're very similar to each other. What happened with CrossFit and I competed in Minnesota, I competed in Miami. Um, I did it pretty heavily for about four years. I absolutely loved it, but the training for me, I remember the day that I cleaned 200 pounds and I thought, like, what do I really want to get up to? Do I just want to keep going, going, going? Like, is my body going to be able to sustain this? And I felt like I was constantly nursing my left shoulder. I was constantly going to the chiropractor for my lower back. And it's like, I was spending more time trying to fix myself up. And so that's kind of when that sort of all goes into also when I went through my adrenal exhaustion, but I just kind of had to take a step back from that. And the reason I love the Spartan races so much, now we're not dealing with all of that heavy weight repetitively over and over again. It's more, it's endurance. It's, you know, you are using your glycolytic system as well, but we're not doing you know, tr we're not, we're not cleaning. There's no reason to clean 200 pounds in your training for a Spartan race. Yeah. That makes a lot of sense there. I mean, from the bodybuilding perspective, I totally agree with you on the subjectivity of the judging involved. And you know, that, that makes it hard because I am very much a data driven, like measurable style person. So there's been competitions that I've I my last competition. I, I won my division, but I lost the overall and I'm pretty sure it was simply because of the 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 color, like the tan I used was it was solid, but it was like a different shade than I normally use because what I normally use was sold out when I, when I ordered the color, and it was just crazy to like lose based off of the the coloring from from a definition standpoint, from a symmetrical standpoint. I feel like I had had the competition hands down, but the subjectivity that comes with it can without a doubt be frustrating. So I totally like where you're going with, you know, the Spartan races and, and CrossFit being much more measurable. Um, my one knock against CrossFit is because I just feel like there's there's so much more uh, opportunity for injury in a lot of the movements that they incorporate. And oftentimes you get, you know, one trainer overseeing 70 people at some of these CrossFit gyms. And there's no way they can really get the attention, give the attention they need, especially for someone that's newer to the sport and doesn't really know how to how to operate their muscles effectively i mean there's a lot of room for injury there uh, whereas with the spartan races it's it's not as injury prone i wouldn't think yes and so i spent a lot of time defending crossfit when i was doing it and you know because i would say oh no you know you just have to watch your form and make sure that you don't you know don't get too crazy while you're doing the workouts don't push it too hard you know and, but the reality is that's what CrossFit's all about is, you know, you've got the person next to you, everybody wants to keep up and you told yourself you weren't gonna, you know, push it that hard. And if your form got bad, you'd slow down, but you don't. And, um, you know, toward the end, it just got to where I, I couldn't deny it anymore that, and, and I, and I absolutely love CrossFit. I personally do a lot of CrossFit style workouts at my house. We have a shop, um, we, our gym is in our shop here at the house. But it's different with me doing it here by myself as opposed to out with, you know, a group of other people that I'm competing against is a little bit different. But the shoulder injuries in CrossFit are just, I mean, it's almost across the board. Yeah. It's really hard to tell somebody that's a, an extreme athlete not to overdo it. <laughs> Those words don't tend to sink in very well. Exactly. That's exactly it. So with the Spartan races, I feel like, like there's there's been several different 
I don't know if they're called federations or brands or, or how they've got the what, what the lingo is, but there seems to be a lot more obstacle course uh, races popping up and becoming available. Is, is Spartan, j- just from, from my perspective, totally a layperson as far as obstacle courses are concerned, it's, it seems like Spartan's kind of like the king, though. You know, I don't know if Spartan is the king or if Tough Mudder is the king. I really am not sure, but... I'll tell you the reason I chose Spartans over Tough Mudders is because I'm sure they're very similar in many ways. But in the Tough Mudder, there's an obstacle that you have to go through where there are all these cables hanging from really high and they hang straight down and you have to run through them and they electrocute you. Yeah, I heard about that. It does not sound appealing. (laughs) Yeah. And I just can't get on board with that. And so, I mean, I've had several people tell me how they feel like they've just been, you know, punched directly in their chest from that, you know, electric shock. And so I didn't go that way. And so I do Spartan. (laughs) (laughs) That's a good enough reason to me. I don't think anybody can argue that. (laughs) I've heard, I don't know if this is anywhere close to the reality or the truth, but I've heard that there's been a push to get Spartan races and I don't know if it's Spartan specifically or just obstacle courses in general into the Olympics as an Olympic sport. Is that true? Oh, I have not heard that. Yeah. That would be amazing. There are some really amazing Spartan athletes out there. And honestly, like from a like you look at all the different sports across the board and you try to find like like functional strength, they call it. You know, like you want to be able to do things in training that have a direct carryover to improving your day to day function and I look at you know what I do as a bodybuilder and there's definitely some some crossover there like being able to deadlift a barbell directly applies to my ability to you know pick up seed bags all day long but I feel like as far as any one sport goes being really effective as a obstacle course athlete would have probably the most direct correlation to performing better in day-to-day activity Yes. And I really love that idea. I think that has a lot to do. I think that was one of the things that I really liked initially about going into CrossFit. Um, And then it's now what I really love about Spartan, which I feel is, you know, even a little bit more realistic to, you know, really being functional and, and day to day life and really being able to, you know, pull yourself up and hold yourself up and all of those things that especially for women um, who generally have a really hard time with you know even doing one single pull-up and you're not using carbs to do do these races right you're, you're sticking strict keto throughout the obstacle course races and you're able to right yeah function just fine you know yeah and i actually um had tried before kind of loading with like sweet potatoes or yams because like i said i'm always up for i'm always up for anything that's going to help me so i'm willing to experiment and try different things um but i can't really say that the yams did much for me in terms of, you know, quote unquote, filling up your glycogen stores for more energy. Um, I will sometimes on my um, longer runs, my half marathons, I will actually utilize Manuka honey. Mm -hmm. And I really like to use that before and during my races. Um, But what I really enjoy utilizing, and this is for both um, running and um, and for my Spartan races is the Vespa. The Vespa works really, really well for, um, really helping you utilize your body fat for energy. And, and what is that exactly? I saw it at a conference, but I haven't used it myself. Yeah. So, uh, Peter Defty is the owner of Vespa and I think he was actually at KetoCon. I don't know if it was two years ago or three years ago, might've been three years ago. Anyway, it turns out he lives here in my area. And so, so we talk regularly and I actually sell his Vespa out of my store. And so he's, you know, came and talked to me quite extensively about it. And it's a, it's like a wasp extract, but the idea behind it is it allows your body to use your fat for energy. So you, you take a packet about an hour before you're going to race and you let it settle for about 20 or 30 minutes. And then the, the key to it is going on at just kind of a nice warm up jog for about 20 minutes or so. And then at, and that way you're kind of getting it in your system. And at the start line, you take another packet of Vespa and, and, you, and you take off. 
And then mid-race, maybe an hour in, an hour and a half in, you take another Vespa, and it just literally feels like rocket fuel. I mean, we're talking that these have like five grams of carbs in them. It's, you know, next to nothing compared to like the goose, you know. So it's a it's a wasp extract, like an extract of, of what exactly? It's, it's a wasp extract. Huh. I'll definitely, I mean, yeah. that's, so- that's crazy. It's yeah, it's very interesting. It's incredible for he says it's also great for athletes who are not keto. I, you know, I don't know about that, but for being ketogenic, I have um, really enjoyed using it. And so sometimes I'll combine it and also use a uh, Manuka Sport is the brand, but they have this Manuka Honey, which can also be utilized um, like a goo. But at least uh, you know I enjoy the fact that it's a honey, and, and the Manuka especially has so many. Um, benefits, so many health benefits. So for me, it's kind of like if I am going to put any sugar in my body at all, I want it to at least have some sort of other, you know, benefits for me. And it's an antimicrobial and, and all of these things. So I feel a little bit better about that. What about like the, like the Ucan starches? Have you played around with those at all? I have not. That's like the hot, hot thing not. right now on the streets. Everybody's playing around with Ucan super starch because it doesn't I supposedly I do impact your glucose. On. Yeah, yeah. A lot of people, it's it's funny. I feel like the the keto space has gotten pretty experimental lately, which is good. You know, the more the more people can try and test things out and see how it responds to them, the better. Um, I'm curious to see, you know, where the chips fall and everything. That'll be interesting. Yeah, I agree. So I've got one more series of questions for you. And it's, it's related to all of your experience with uh, nutritional therapy. So with you being keto now and following a, a fat based diet. How have you, or what have what have you noticed with regard to your your gut health, um, and have you noticed any adverse effects from, you know, not incorporating? I'm assuming you're probably not taking in as many uh, dietary uh, fibrous carbs as you were prior. So how has that impacted things? Well, so I mean, there's it's kind of like two things going on because, you know, getting involved or getting into nutritional therapy and that whole aspect of the education in my mind, I was going through those things because I wanted to, you know, expand my knowledge, be able to help people further and on a deeper level. And what really ended up coming of it was identifying some imbalances and things that I had going on with myself. And so one of the things that I have dealt with nearly my entire life was chronic constipation. And it was just something that was a part of my life and I had accepted and that's just how it was always going to be. And so, you know, I've actually had to, I've run a, you know, a GI map on myself and the food sensitivity testing and to, to sort of identify what was going on on the inside. Because see, one of the things was I had switched to a ketogenic protocol. And when I ran my GI, my GI map test, which is a, it's a stool test and it's, it's a DNA stool test. And it's going to identify anything that's going on in your gut. It'll tell you anything that's living in your gut, any pathogens, parasites, worms, anything like that. Luckily, I didn't have anything like that going on. However, my steatocrit level was high, meaning I was not digesting and absorbing my fats properly. That's not good. So then it's not good. So then what good is a ketogenic diet going to do for me if I'm not even utilizing those fats? And so I had to do, I did, you know, really take care of my gallbladder and some things um, so that now I can, um, you know, and I, and I absorb and digest my fats very well. My energy is much, much higher and chronic constipation is a thing of the past. So, and all of that with, yeah, I really don't intake much fiber. And as a matter of fact, um, while I don't, you know, label myself as any certain type of keto, I will say that during the week, I pretty much just eat meat and organs. And then on the weekends, if I feel like it, I might throw in an avocado or maybe I feel like having a salad. Um, And then maybe I don't. It just sort of depends on my mood or my husband's mood on what we feel like eating. So, yeah, I really don't intake a lot of fiber. And yet I've never been so regular in my life. Yeah, I I honestly follow a pretty similar protocol myself. I I don't label myself as a carnivore because I'm I'm not 100% carnivore. I'll eat, you know, a random salad or obviously I'll eat the keto bricks or something like that. But I I can confidently label myself as a strict keto 
person, you know, because I, I stick to strict keto. But I feel like, you know, I, I don't feel any benefit anytime I do ingest carbs or broccoli, uh, carbs in the form of vegetables like broccoli or salads or anything like that. I don't, I don't notice any benefit whatsoever. If anything, I notice more of a bloat. So the only time I'll ever take it is just simply to have a little bit of variety to my my you know food palettes. That's pretty much the only reason I'm ever ever consuming anything that's not animal based. And that's I'm right there with you on that. I, anytime I do consume it, um, and I know that I would probably have a lot of my colleagues who wouldn't agree with me because you know they're very big on variety of vegetables and all those things. But anytime I eat it, yes, it's really simply out of the fact of you know that sounds good right now. Totally. Um, but other than that, you know, that's about it because I, you know, I get a lot of, um, liver, I eat, uh, cod liver, you know, beef liver and those organs they're you know, they're just so dense in those micronutrients. Did you increase, like, uh, did you have like ox bile supplementation when you were adjusting your there for a while and kind of getting your gallbladder, uh, producing like it should, or, or what'd you do during that period? Yeah, so I I took so generally when a person still has a gallbladder but it's not functioning properly, um, you don't generally want to give that person ox bile salts because you don't want to tell the gallbladder to to stop doing what it's doing. But sometimes in in some more severe cases, it can be a good idea to do a bottle or two of ox bile salts and then switch over to a gallbladder support supplement that doesn't necessarily contain the ox bile, but other nutrients to support your gallbladder. And that's what I did. I actually went through two bottles of the ox bile salts to get everything on track and um, and then now just take a gallbladder support. I didn't even know those existed. Is there like a particular brand that you recommend? Yeah, so I usually for that will use the Biotics Research brand. And what all is in it? Just a, a gallbladder support? What does that entail? You know, the the trying to think the beta tcp has the i'm trying to remember which vitamins it has in there it doesn't have the ox bile and i'm not remembering off the top of my head um which vitamins the beta tcp has although i could probably find my bottle of it um but it does amazing without actually having your gallbladder you know think oh i don't need to you know, do what I normally do with the bile, um, because, you know, she's giving it to me. Yeah. Yeah. That makes sense. Yeah. And there's never any good, good that comes with supplementing to the point of shutting down your body's own natural production. Exactly. Exactly. And so, and you can do that sometimes for a period of time, but you don't want to do it, you know, for too long. Yeah. Um, I know that it's got the, one of the really great things about it is it has the, um, it's got beets in there and beets are really good for gallbladder support. Um, the only time when it's really a bummer is if, is if a person has a sensitivity, a food sensitivity to beets, then we're not able to use the beta TCP, but there's other things like phosphatidylcholine, which is really great. Um, for gallbladder support as well, which the choline is really found in, in egg yolks. And so if you're eating a lot of eggs, that, you know, is very helpful too. You mentioned that during the week you're probably sticking to uh, meat and, and organ meat. So what, what kind of like, what, what's a typical day of eating look like for you, I guess is a good question. Well, I start off in the morning with a, I'm on a cold brew kick right now. So I generally will do some cold brew um, with some raw heavy cream in there. And I, if I, if I allowed it to, that would actually hold me over until about, you know, maybe one or two o'clock. I do try to eat a little, I, I try to eat earlier than that because I, ha I am and have been dealing with, um, some adrenal and thyroid issues. And so it's important to make sure that my body doesn't feel like it's ever in a, you know, starvation state. Mm -hmm. And so I will sometimes I, I don't like to have a heavy meal early, but I might have something like four pieces of bacon. Um, and I might do that sometime like around 11 or so in the morning. And then, and then I usually just do two meals. And so my meals might consist of, you know, eight to 10 ounces of a variety of meats, maybe some tri-tip, maybe some chicken thigh. Um, I'll throw some um, cod liver in there. Um, 
my next meal might be a, you know, organ meat burger, you know, a couple of patties there. Um, it's really simple, which I think is one of the things that I love the most about it is that it's just such an incredibly easy way to eat. So my two meals, they pretty much are very similar to each other. And it might just be, you know, eight to 10 ounces of, of whatever meat I'm going to do. And I don't really do, I don't add a lot of fats. I'm not a big, you know, I don't really add butter to things or, but I really enjoy fattier cuts of meat. So I, you know, I I really rely on my ribeyes and things like that, um, to, to supply my fats. Yeah, that, that sounds honestly pretty similar to what I, what I do as well. It's crazy how similar our protocols are here. Um, That's funny. <laughs> yeah. I feel like the it's just honestly liberating to be able to eat, you know, once if you wanted to, but on a normal day-to-day, you know, two meals a day and you're good and it doesn't have any kind of negative impact on your training and ability to perform, whereas you and I both come from, you know, eating six to eight meals a day. There's just there's no life that comes with that. I mean, your whole world revolves around food. Whereas with keto, it's just you, you can you can have your life back and you can be free from all the strain of you know revolving everything you do, every decision you make, everywhere you go around what you're eating that day. Yeah, I mean, I remember when I was competing and I would wake up at three a.m. so that I could eat my eggs and my oatmeal before I drove to the gym to work out at four thirty. I mean, that's like being a prisoner. Yeah, it's not not sustainable, not in a, not with any degree of actual enjoyment. Um, I'm exactly. curious, have you seen the Game Changers documentary? Gosh, I have not yet, but I'm planning to. My husband and I actually have uh, uh, plans to watch it on Sunday after we get home from the race this weekend. I uh, I see a bunch of posts being made about it right now. I guess it was just released here recently. Yes. I watched it this past week with with Danny and Adam, uh, Danny Vega, and it was it was interesting. I mean, <laughs> we all three are keto, so it was it was kind of like a I don't know. It was just I'd be interested to get your take on it when you do watch it because ha- having heard what you've said about everything that you've done and have done in the past and what you're doing now, I feel like we've got a pretty similar tr- approach to you know our nutrition. So I'd be curious to get your feedback on it after you, after you watch it. Yeah, I'm both looking forward to and cringing at the at the thought of watching it. <laughs> well, I will say this: the actual production quality was was really good. Like the 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 you know the way they put the film together was really impressive. The content, the actual content of the film, was was not so much. But the the production quality, which which is kind of unfortunate, because since it was so well polished, I feel like it's going to steer a lot of people that direction. And there's just it just lacks the science and the research, you know. Well, and that, and that's why I'm cringing because I'm thinking, you know, they it must have been a well-made documentary because I'm seeing even people in my local area. So there's um, an acquaintance that I have here. He actually owns a Mexican restaurant in the area here, and he he runs. Um, gosh, I think he just did a half Ironman. And so, you know, he's pretty active and all of a sudden he's posting these pictures of his food, you know, and hashtagging game changers. And it's just obviously everything meatless. And I'm thinking, no, how on earth this guy who I know has been a big meat eater. I mean, you know, he's Mexican, which and and I am, too. So I can say that, you know, we we generally are not vegetarians. And so now, you know, here he's going vegan after watching that documentary. I mean, just like that, and I feel like it's happening with people. So, so I know I have to watch it. Yeah, I feel like you know all of us in the keto space owe it to ourselves to watch it because I feel like that just gives us more leverage. Like we need to be educated on what everybody's doing and why they're doing it. If we're educated, then we can have a greater impact because we know we we can become part of the conversation as opposed to just being this ignorant bystander that just shout slander from the sidelines you know like i want to be in the know and i want to know why people are gravitating towards one protocol over another but it was i was unimpressed with the research it it was just it was very uh deceptive and kind of how they laid things out and it was just honestly bad information a lot of it so now i wasn't too impressed with the quality of of the information itself so hopefully people will watch it and 
recognize that there were definitely some blind spots there that they need to do a little bit of homework on themselves and not just take it at face value as fact, you know? Yes. And I, and I am in agreement with you. I think that it's very much our responsibility to make sure that we are, we do watch these things because, you know, because I am going to have clients, which I'm surprised I haven't yet, but I am going to have clients come to me and say, Hey, how about that? You know, game changers. And I need to be able to say more than, Oh, just don't listen to that. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. Well, Tanya, I would sit here and talk to you all day long, uh, but I've already taken up over an hour of your time. Um, we'll definitely have to do this again, though. I'm, I'm, like I said, I'm, I'm keen to, to follow along and see what you're doing and why, because I respect everything you've said thus far, and I feel like we do have a pretty similar approach to why we're doing things the way we are. So um, I appreciate you taking the time and talking with me. Yeah, I have very much enjoyed this and, and would love to talk again. 100%. Well, where can people go to find out more about you and learn something? Oh, yes. And actually, before I give that information, let me also say that I'm ready to be your first wholesale account for Keto Bricks when you guys are ready. Oh, well, that's that's awesome news. We're actually working on getting all that set up right now. We're, we're trying to get some packaging finalized. Like right now, our packaging, like we, we've had multiple stages in changing our packaging. We had those stand-up pouches, which were great, but they're hard to open. They're just not they don't look professional, uh, so we, we've transitioned from that to this equipment that we have now that puts them in those, uh, you know, silver, uh, they're called, it's called a flow wrapper, so basically a flow wrap package, but then we're going to get custom packaging on top of that so that the film itself is custom, and once we have that, then we can start reaching out and trying to, you know, get on store shelves and do wholesale if that's the direction we want to take things, but yeah, that, that's in the works as we speak. Awesome. Awesome. Look forward to it. Um, yeah. So you can find me at my website, which is pretty easy. It's tanyapennington.com. And also my Instagram account is tanya.pennington. I will certainly link out to those. And, and Tanya, again, I really appreciate you taking the time. If there's ever anything I can do, by all means, shoot me an email. Let me know. and we'll, we'll make it happen. Awesome. Sounds good. It's been great talking to you. Likewise. Likewise. Take care.